We're going to be back in Mark 12 this morning. And we've come as far as verse 35. Mark 12, 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So, as you recall, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the major religious groups have been grilling Jesus to either diminish his popularity with the crowds of people or get evidence they can use to accuse him to the Romans. They're grilling him. He doesn't feel the heat. He never falters. They have been unsuccessful in trapping him. And now Jesus turns the tables and he asks them a question. The last man that approached him was a scribe, so Jesus asked them, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So Jesus asked them a question, but his motives in asking them a question is not the same motive that they had in asking him questions. He's not seeking to merely show them up or win an argument. His desire and aim is to help them to understand the true nature of the Messiah or Christ in the Greek, according to the scriptures. He has no evil intent. He's not seeking to lift himself up at their expense. He has no need to boost his ego or try to get one up on them. He has no emotional turmoil as we might have if we have a dispute with someone. He's continuing to serve his purpose, with, which is to bear witness to the truth as he told Pilate when he was being examined by Pilate, for this reason I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. It's the truth about Jesus, the Messiah, that sets men free. And so he's seeking to help them understand the truth about him so that they might be set free, as he said in John 8. Jesus seeks to serve them the same way he serves his disciples or anyone else. He's loving his enemies. We can sometimes get the wrong idea about what the motives of Jesus can be, as could the people of his day. We can only surmise the tone of his question, but I think it was probably quite gentle. He's in teaching mode, not rebuking mode. He gives them information that they have not considered concerning the nature of the Messiah. Perhaps some of them will understand either now or later. Some of them do understand later. The question is very pertinent. The standard view in Jesus' day was that the Messiah would be of the lineage of David, one of his descendants. He would be a man. He would establish the kingdom that had been promised to David. He would throw off the Roman yoke under which the Jewish people bristled. But he would be just a man. His kingdom would continue forever through his offspring. We have seen people like blind Bartimaeus calling out to Jesus as the son of David. It was a common messianic title. Uh, in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark 11, back in the previous chapter, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the people cried out, 
In verse 10, it said, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they're saying, Blessed is the kingdom that comes. And Jesus goes into Jerusalem and looks around. Uh, In Matthew, Matthew tells us when Jesus was making this descent into Jerusalem, some in the crowd cried out, saying, Blessed be the son of David. They were looking for the everlasting kingdom, though, and not necessarily the everlasting king. Now, the Messiah was certainly promised to be of the lineage of David. They were correct in this. Jesus is not saying otherwise. Messiah's lineage was given in Scripture, first as the seed of the woman, when he spoke to her in Genesis 3.15, and the seed of man could not do it, because the seed of man... Would, you would have a fallen person seeking to redeem mankind. Later on, the identity of the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come, was narrowed to Abraham. It would be through his seed and through Isaac, through Isaac to Jacob, to Jacob to the tribe of Judah, and then finally it was narrowed to David and his offspring, his descendants. It was back in Second Samuel chapter 7. You recall that uh, David was desirous of building a house for the Lord. He said, here I am dwelling in a house of cedar and the Lord's out here in a tent, you know, not very glorious compared to David's house, you know. And so David said, well, I'm, I'm building a house. And Nathan was there and Nathan said, you just do whatever is in your heart. In verse 4 of 2 Samuel 7, it says, It happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I've moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord never said that. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And then he tells them about the place that he's established for them. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. And then the Lord tells David this. Also the Lord tells you that he will build you. He will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It has... A short-term fulfillment in Solomon as he builds this temple of the Lord. But, of course, it's looking forward to a different son of David who will establish a kingdom and build a house for the Lord that will last forever. We're not talking just about a temple on the mountain Jerusalem, but the temple 
that is his body, built of these living stones that are put together. And so uh, he says here, I'll be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chastise him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so Nathan tells him these these things. And David says in verse 18, he, he goes in and sits before the Lord. And he says, who am I? Oh, Lord God. And what is my house that you have brought me this far? You know, David's an amazing man, an amazing person. I don't know. Often we don't think about, you know, how just how incredible he was. He was the king and the prophet. <laughs> All the things he wrote, prophecies from the Lord, you know. And here he is. Uh, who am I <laughs> that you brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Not only what I'm experiencing here and what you've done, but... A great while to come. That's forever. That's a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Later on in verse 29, David responds to the Lord and says, Now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord, have spoken it, and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. And uh, we certainly will see that, right? The promise of the kingdom here that will last forever. There will be uh, a descendant of David ruling forever in Jerusalem. Over in Daniel chapter 2, this is the chapter in which Nebuchadnezzar's dream is recounted. He has this dream and he wants his wise men and wizards and sorcerers to interpret it for him and they said yeah tell us the dream we'll tell you what it means and he said no you tell me the dream and give me an interpretation then I'll know that you're telling me the truth and you're not making stuff up and they're like nobody has ever asked their wise men to do anything like this and he said well if you can't do it I'm going to kill you all I'm going to have you all executed and so Daniel's not there at the time and so he gets word that you know and they start picking off these wise men and he says well give us a little time and we'll tell you the answer and so he and the other three guys you know Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego get together and they have this prayer meeting and the Lord reveals it to Daniel his head of gold chest um, silver um, belly and thighs of bronze and then iron and iron mixed with clay down to the feet and so Daniel tells him what this means. These are successive kingdoms that are going to be coming, right? And this last set will be they're the, the feet and the ten toes because you got these ten kings. Uh, and in verse 44 of Daniel 2 then, Daniel sums it up. He says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other peoples. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, this mountain had come down and smashed the feet of this 
image and it had crumbled to pieces. It broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Doesn't matter how great the kingdom is. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So once again, we get this uh, message that this kingdom's coming. And once it replaces the kingdoms of the earth, that it will last forever. But there are other scriptures that indicate that this Messiah will be more than a mere man. It is not just the kingdom that will rule or will continue forever, but also the king will rule the kingdom forever. Uh, Isaiah 9, famous Christmas scripture that we've looked at recently, where Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, which can be Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And then he says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his people to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So not only is that kingdom going to continue, but this one who comes will be the one who rules in that kingdom forever. And Daniel again in chapter 7 In verse 9, Daniel has another vision given to him. He says in verse 9, I watched until thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. It has wheels on his throne, just like Ezekiel witnessed. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. So we're getting the idea of judgment taking place here. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. And this is, you know, a symbol and image of the coming antichrist i watched till the beast was slain its body destroyed and given to the burning flame and as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion he'd seen this uh, vision of four various beasts similar to the four kingdoms of the statue they had their dominion dominion taken away and yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time and then he says i was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man And, of course, Jesus applied this very scripture here to himself when he was being examined before the Sanhedrin. I see one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That's the kingdom that's coming, that we're waiting for, that we're looking forward to. Still a little bit of time before it will get here. We don't know exactly how long, but you know we know we got at least those seven years of tribulation before the second coming takes place. Uh, the Lord can rapture us at any time, but uh, we know there's a, a time period yet, and, but we pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is this, this world is so corrupt and evil, and it's getting more evil all the time. And we, we long for 
the Lord to come and for his kingdom to reign. So he's the one who's going to reign. It's not just the kingdom that will last, but the king who will last forever. And uh, he's more than the son of David, right? Over in Luke chapter 1, we looked at this last week, 30 through 33, where we saw the birth of this one. Uh, The angel Gabriel speaking to Mary in verse 30 says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So it's clarified again for us that he's the one who's going to reign. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter exhorting The believer says, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Revelation 11, 15, as the angels are sounding their trumpets, it says, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. He himself will reign in this kingdom for ever and ever, everlasting kingdom. There were certainly Israelites who understood this, but they were not the movers and shakers in Israel. Uh, Jesus presents a passage to them then that is a direct answer to the question, can he be David's son alone? And he asks, why did, how do they say that he's David's son The problem that these religious leaders have in their understanding is a problem called segmented biblical attention, which is a fancy term. If you've done much cult study or prepared that, this is one of the terms that's used to kind of concisely express something. It's a fancy term for only taking into account some scriptures while neglecting others. And this is a common way in which false teachings are promulgated. We must consider the whole counsel of God, that is, the totality of what the scriptures teach, as we formulate sound doctrine. There are those who are much mistaken because they do not take into account all the scriptures concerning the Messiah or none of the scriptures concerning him. The only true reliable information we have about him comes from the Bible. If you get information about Jesus or this Messiah from some other source, you don't know it's reliable unless you examine it according to what, what the Word of God teaches. And there's lots of unreliable information about him out there. A lot of it sounds good, but it's not good. It's actually the opposite of good. Because of the this segmented biblical attention and a twisting of the truth, <clears throat> Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a created being, not Almighty God, not God come in the flesh. They teach, in fact, that he began as an angel, Michael the archangel by name, who took on flesh and died on the torture stake, they call it. He was not physically raised from the dead, and they don't know what happened to the body of Jesus. I know at one point they speculated that it may have dissolved into gases. They teach that this one is now Michael the Archangel once again. 
It takes little knowledge of the scriptures we've looked at already to refute this enormous error, an error that leaves those who believe it without salvation. But also, if we simply read in Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the writer says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So this one is the creator, one who made the world, who being the brightness of his glory, that is God's glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, he holds all things together. And when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He did it all alone. Nobody else did anything to purge our sins. It was all that which Jesus did. And he sat down. That's where he is now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now he's not saying that he is lesser than the angels or that he is an angel. Um, but because of this work, he's... You know, and, and he's refuting the idea that angels, you know, the angels were mediators for the law of Moses, we're told. And so people venerated these angels. Oh, angels are fantastic. He'll, he'll go on to compare Jesus with Moses. And Moses, you know, fantastic. But Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than this ministry of the angels that was set forth. He says in verse 5 then, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? What's the answer? He never said that to any angel, Michael or anybody else. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Did he ever say that of any angel? No. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, and firstborn is the idea of the preeminent one, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. So all the angels bow down and worship Jesus because he's the one who's deserving of worship. Nobody is worthy of worship other than God himself. And so the angels bow down and worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, they're not sons in the sense of being begotten by the Father. He's the only begotten. Now listen to what he says to the Son in verse 8. But to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. <coughs> the Father calls the Son God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, we've got a couple of guys here who identify as God, just as in John 1. Uh, one through three. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Being an anointed in this sense, the anointed one, that's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means, is anointed. So he's anointed with the oil of gladness more than all others. And he says this to him, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now back in the context, these are all quotes from various places in the Old Testament. Uh, 
in the New King James are in caps. It might be different if you have a different version. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation. Or this is the Creator God. And Lord, Yahweh is the context of what's being spoken here. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up. And they will be changed. But you're the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Ooh, that's the, that's the verse that Jesus quotes to these guys when he asked them. Did he ever say that to an angel? No. Are they not all ministering spirits set forth, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? It's almost as if this passage was written to refute this very error. And it goes on in chapter 2 to further refute this error concerning angels. Uh, the witnesses will desire that you study their books and not the Bible directly because people get in trouble when they study the Bible apart from the Watchtower and all those other books. Also, because of segmented or little biblical attention, Mormonism teaches that Jesus is our spirit brother. Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. So we're spirit brothers with Jesus and Lucifer. Jesus is the only Savior because he presented a better plan of salvation to the Father, the only God, that is, in this universe, than did Lucifer. They both came with their plans. And the father liked Jesus' plan. He didn't like Lucifer's plan. So there's this big rebellion by Lucifer. All human beings, according to them, are the spirit offspring of the father God and one of his multiple wives. These spirit children take on bodies in this world so that they can prove faithful and become gods of their own planet. Jesus became a god because he was faithful in carrying out his plan. And you also have the potential to become a god and rule over your own planet. Polygamy here and in heaven is the means by which you have multitudes of spirit children of your own who will have the opportunity to become gods. This is all taught by the patriarchs of Mormonism. Many of these things are not taught in the Bible, of course, but they're also not found in the Mormon books. But they were taught by Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and other presidents of the, this cult who were deemed to be infallible prophets of God. Still, the president of the church is supposed to be infallible, just as the Pope is in Catholicism. Well, these teachings obviously do not have any semblance to the truth of Scripture. In Second John chapter 1, as John's warning us about uh, these people who would teach falsely about Jesus. In verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is one of the major heresies of his day, is that people say, oh, he just appeared, he looked like a man, he just looked to be a man, but he really wasn't, you know. But no, he, he says he came in the flesh. He took on humanity as part of his nature. He says, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. If you, if you go beyond the doctrine of Christ as taught in the Bible, he says, you don't have God. 
Who abide, he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And, you know, he's writing in Second John probably a house church. So he's saying don't let them come in and teach this stuff where you are. So we don't want to be infected with presentations of a false Christ Jesus from any of these sources. Because of segmented or little, if any, biblical attention, uh, false teachings throughout history have taught that Jesus, yeah, everyone uses the name Jesus to their own advantage. They have taught that Jesus is just one of many of the manifestations of God in the flesh. In fact, most mysticism teaches that you yourself are God. And you only need to remember who you are and begin to act like a God. We've all simply forgotten that we're spirit children of the Father God and we're we're part of God himself. And we just need to remember this and begin acting like this. And this is where you get out on a limb where you're shouting, I am God, I am God, I am God. I mean, there are major logical contradictions in this because you're supposed to be able to, anybody can create their own reality and speak things into existence. And if we're all gods, well, Dave Hunt said, well, that explains how things are so messed up. (laughs) But if we're all gods and I'm creating a reality of my own and you're creating a reality of your own and they don't agree, we got some big issues, right? But this is what, what they've taught, what they teach. So you just need to, once again, remember where you came from. These false teachings and religions, and uh, in our day we call many of them, they're under the umbrella of the New Age. They say that Jesus achieved God consciousness and that you also can do so. He became the Christ or reached what is called Christ consciousness. But we saw last week uh, when the angel spoke to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, he says, Uh, there's a babe, he's been born unto you this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. He didn't become Christ at some point. He didn't become the Messiah or the anointed one at some point. As a matter of fact, he was the Messiah before he was born. That term particularly speaks of his incarnated person, but he was what he is always and before. And so no one can achieve Christ consciousness and thereby become exalted there's only one promised christ and jesus is him and somebody i used to work with bought me a t-shirt one time that was uh, it was witnessing walls witnessing church you know and said even in the even in the new age two things are obvious i don't know if that's a direct quote but on the back it said number one there is a god and number two you're not him. <laughs> he was the Messiah before being born. He'll continue to be the one and only Messiah forever. And it requires a certain level of rejection of the truth of God and delusion to accept such illogical and bizarre teachings as the truth. Because of segmented or little biblical attention... We find one of the most perverse and insidious false religions is Islam, and it's one of the largest. 
It changes every Jewish patriarch and prophet into a Muslim, including Jesus. In fact, Jesus is not even the greatest of the prophets, but Muhammad is. Uh, when they talk about the last days and, and Muhammad coming back, they, they say Jesus will come back as his lieutenant. He's going to be his right-hand man, his second in command. In John chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Just as. He's claiming something special. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so that eliminates this as a possible path to God. Islam teaches that God has no son and that he's not a father. And this is even written in a mosque somewhere. First John chapter 2, verses 21 through 26, John also writes to us and says, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who's a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So if you deny the Son, then you deny the Father. And uh, Allah is not God because he has no Son. There is a... A Jewish man who used to go about around speaking, Avi Lip, Lipkin. Avi Lipkin was his. That was his pseudonym when he would speak. I can't. I don't remember his first uh, full name, but Mordecai. Victor Mordecai. Victor Mordecai. And he would go to synagogues and churches and speak, and he would he just say, "Allah is Satan." <laughs> and if you compare Allah to Satan in the Bible, you get a pretty clear picture of who he is. Now, you don't necessarily say this the first time you run into a Muslim, you know, but it, it gives you a perspective and a basis for, you know, interacting with them and talking to them. We see among the radical Islamists the insistence that any who refuse to convert to Islam should be subjugated forced to pay a special tax, a jizya, or to be killed. It's, there's a demi status. The preferred method of execution is to have the throat slit, or, you know, if you go far enough slitting the throat, what happens? There's a beheading that takes place. We are told by many, including media and the politicians, that those who advocate these things do not truly represent Islam. But those who advocate these things do; um, those who advocate these things do have Quranic verses that justify their actions. In John 16:2, Jesus warned the apostles. He said, uh, speaking to them, they will put you out of the synagogues. But he says, "Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service," and that's exactly the attitude of of these, these folks. 
They think they're serving God by murdering those who don't agree with them and aren't willing to take the step to agree with them. Now, you know, this is only 10%, 15% of Muslims. I certainly don't want to paint all Muslims with this brush. I mean, 85 to 90% of them are, are not Islamists. They're not seeking to kill other people and dominate the world. But, you know, 10% would still be over 100 million. 15%, you know, 150 million or so. And that's, I don't know, they're over a billion, right? Muslims in the world. So it's not a small number. I'm keeping this out because my battery is diminishing, so I may have to change it before I get finished. So it's not a small number, even though it might be not be that great a percentage. Uh, Islam, radical or not, is the implacable foe of all who value freedom and truth. Because of a rejection of the Bible altogether, many teach that there is no God and in doing so unleash tremendous evil upon the world. Atheism has resulted in most of the huge mass killings in history. And even when benign, it condemns men to a godless eternity. Psalm 14.1, you know, where it says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. That's God speaking, calling the one who does not believe he exists a fool. It's repeated in Psalm 53.1. And, of course, in Romans 1, we get that uh, from verse 18 on, we get that degeneration throughout that passage and it ends up in verse 28 saying even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting and then we have that long list of sinful behaviors so all of these And other false teachings attack the scripture as being untrue or corrupted. The historical and manuscript evidence abundantly testifies to the opposite. God has given and preserved his word for all mankind. Over in Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, it tells us, The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And the Lord has preserved his word. He's given us his very words that he has spoken. Scripture in its entirety and in its context is protection against all false teachings about God, Jesus, salvation, etc. You would do well to marinate your mind in the word of God. It has eternal benefit, and neglecting it is dangerous in the extreme. You don't need to know the details of these false teachings if you're talking to somebody. You simply need to know the truth and be aware that if they sound like they're agreeing with you, they may not. You have to define terms. You have to drill down and find out what do they actually mean by, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, or whatever you might be discussing. Well, Jesus here quotes Psalm 110.1 where it's a psalm of David and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the Jews agreed that this was a psalm written by David and that it was referring to the Messiah. Jesus quoting it confirms its authorship by King David. How does David call him Lord? And Jesus we know, upheld the authority of Scripture very highly. And he says, David spoke by the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, David was prophesying when he wrote this. Second Samuel 23, 2, David says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. And by this same psalm, the Father tells us that the Son, uh, tells in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the same one. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, he says, For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. He's discussing this person, Melchizedek. He says, and it is yet far more evident that, far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. That's the Lord Jesus. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And now he's up there waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool, seated at the right hand of God. And it was unheard of in Israel for a father to call his son Lord. And that's why Jesus is bringing this up. Is Jesus the son of David? Yes. Is he the son of God, David's Lord? Yes. He is David's son, but more than David's son. Jesus is really presenting to them the same question that he asked his apostles in Matthew 16 when he said, Who do men say that I am? And they told him, Some say Elijah, some one of the prophets. And he says in verse 15, Who do you say that I am? And that's the same question being presented in a different way. They have to decide, Who is this one standing here speaking to us? And Peter, of course, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus respond to him? Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is a revelation from the father. Anyone who understands that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, has received a revelation from the father. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Son of David, son of God. And Jesus had to be the son of David to qualify as the Messiah according to prophecy. He had to be born God in the flesh, the Son of God, to be our Savior, also according to prophecy. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, Jesus speaking says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He's the very root that David springs from. And yet, he's also the offspring of David as he becomes, takes on flesh. Interesting. Revelation 5.5, 5, also one of the elders speaking to John says, Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Well, he had to be the son of David, but he's not the son of David. He's also the son of uh, the living God. 
We're told then the common people heard him gladly. We need more common people. But this actually uh, means that the multitude heard Jesus gladly, the people who were around. And this is not the case with the religious leaders. They heard him in anger. They heard him resentfully. They heard him filled with hatred. If we look at verse 38 then, it says, He said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Um, we've been talking about the scribes here and to the scribes and so he says Jesus uh, Jesus then warns them about the scribes he warns about their erroneous understanding of the identity of the Messiah and their religious hypocrisy Matthew records the full message of Jesus concerning the scribes and Pharisees at this point um, where he pronounces eight woes and a couple of fools and blinds upon them and there's chapter 23 of Matthew, that whole chapter. It's just, you know, Mark condenses it a little bit. But religious hypocrisy is one of the most detestable things to the Lord. The pretense to be something other than you are, more holy or righteous than you are, is a despicable thing in his sight. Of course, he wants us to be holy and righteous. Those are commandments. But one characteristic of a truly holy and righteous person is humility. They realize that they continue to fall short of God's righteousness and that any righteousness or holiness they experience is a result of his grace abounding to a sinner. The scribes and Pharisees generally were as Jesus speaks of them here. They love the praise and adulation of men to stand out as one who is at the top of their social order, making long prayers simply to be seen of men as godly, And all the time, their prayer is not going beyond the top of their heads. One of the more despicable practices Jesus mentions is the devouring of widows' houses. That is, seeking to deprive widows of their livelihood by playing upon their religious sensibilities, seeking donations with promises of blessings. These types are still around, many of them with TV shows. Uh, And they've always been around. But now they have a further reach through radio and television and and also now the Internet. Mm -hmm. Very far reach. And then finish chapter 12 and verse 41. It says, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. They're just pulling these wads out of their pockets. Well, a lot of them might have been coins at that time. (laughs) Putting it in the donation box, you know. And one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. This is a very small amount. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Jesus, you haven't been paying attention. Didn't you see how much some of those people put in? For they all put in out of their abundance, and she, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood so you know Jesus is speaking of widows houses being devoured and speaking of widows here comes one along and she puts her donation in the the box there in the treasury of the temple Uh, he sees her put it in and Jesus mentions in Matthew the tendency of the hypocrites to have a trumpet blown 
when they gave their offerings or did charitable deeds, that's in Matthew 6, 2, he says, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. He says, surely I say to you, they have their reward. They've already gotten their reward. You know, that's what they were looking for and that's what they got. And they wouldn't, weren't really looking to God. Nobody blows a trumpet when they give two mites. This is an insignificant amount. But Jesus blows the trumpet for her, so to speak. With God, it's not the size of the gift that's given, but the heart in which it is given. A great gift and amount may be without significance in his sight, while a gift as small as can be is of enormous significance to him. He's looking upon the heart, not upon the pocketbook. He wants to have our pocketbook dedicated to him so he knows he has our heart because many times that's where people's hearts are. Henry Morris says, Jesus here enunciates the great truth that God measures a gift not by its amount, but by its motive and the amount left ungiven. How much is left over? The question is not how much we give, but how much we keep and how do we use what we keep. This widow's gift was the greatest gift given into the treasury, at least on this day. It is easy for most people to give out of abundance. It's never easy to give out of poverty. And certainly not to give all that you have. What that takes, and it is unspoken here, is faith. Some might think that going from two cents to nothing is not that big a step. But this is not true. You could buy something to eat for two mites. But you could buy nothing with nothing. This trumpetless widow was trusting God to meet her needs. Now, Lord willing, uh, next week we'll look into chapter 13, this chapter with some great apocalyptic passages, and see what we can see what we can see there.